This is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director. Grateful for your company on this lovely Sunday afternoon. Coming up, a lovely Veterans Day story from WMRA's Emily Richardson Lorente, plus the lowdown on the scooter invasion in Harrisonburg from Christopher Clymer Kurtz. We also have a report from Virginia Public Radio on what lawmakers are doing about school safety in the Commonwealth. And we get a roundup of Virginia politics from Jeff Shapiro. But first, what's in a name? A lot, of course. Uh, It's a story we've been following for months now, the wrangling over the name of Stanton's Public High School. In early October, the Stanton School Board voted to change the name of the city's Robert E. Lee High School. On Monday night, they picked its new name. WMRA's Andrew Jenner reports. In a unanimous vote on Monday night, the Stanton School Board chose Stanton High School as the new name for Robert E. Lee High School. Stanton High was the winner of five options in an online community poll that ran for several weeks in October, when the school board originally voted to remove the Confederate general's name from the high school. That decision followed more than a year of formal deliberation over the matter. In his motion to adopt the name Stanton High School, Vice Chairman Robert Boyle said the time has come for the school board to turn its attention to the many other issues it faces. We need to focus on the construction of the new high school. We need to encourage accreditation. We need to continue to increase salaries. We need to encourage the leadership and goals of our superintendent. And we need to move on with this process. We really do. Although the renaming has been a contentious issue in Stanton, Monday's formal selection of the school's new name proceeded quickly and smoothly. About 50 people attended the meeting. In a public comment period after the board adopted Stanton High School, just two people addressed the name change, one for and one against. Boyle, who last month voted against changing the name, also thanked the community for its participation in the long process. And the school board pledges unity and spirit in moving forward in the weeks and months ahead in support of the high school, its students, its staff, and its parents. Stanton High School isn't technically a new name. It was actually the school's name until 1914, when Robert E. Lee High School emerged from an earlier bout of renaming. This time around, the school board estimates that new signs, sports uniforms, and other updates brought on by this name change will cost around $200,000. The new name will take effect next July 1. For WMRA News, I'm Andrew Jenner. What will it take for Virginia's schools to be more secure? A panel of lawmakers recently looked at that issue. Virginia Public Radio's Michael Pope reports. School counselors spend way too much time administering standardized tests and not enough time counseling students. That could be a key to identifying mental health problems in the classroom. That's according to the Select Committee on School Safety, which says the General Assembly should realign the roles and responsibilities of school counselors. That does not require school divisions to put into place that recommendation. That's Jim Livingston of the Virginia Education Association. He's concerned about that word, should. We believe that this is an absolute must and that the General Assembly, quite honestly, should provide the funding, or is obligated, uh, we believe, to provide the funding in order to make this happen. Delegate Michael Mullen of Newport News is a member of the Select Committee, and he says implementing the recommendation is critical. One of the things that we need to make sure of is that once these recommendations turn into legislation, that it requires us to provide the funding to local school districts to increase the student to counselor ratio so that we're at one counselor for every 250 students. Lawmakers will have a chance to accomplish that goal when they meet for the next General Assembly session in January. I'm Michael Pope.
There are many ways to honor veterans, but maybe one of the easiest may be simply listening to their stories. One church in Buckingham County has taken that a step further and self-published the stories of the veterans in its congregation. WMRA's Emily Richardson Lorente went to meet a few of the contributors in this report that she produced for Veterans Day last week. 69-year-old Wilford Jones has a story to tell. Shipped me straight to Vietnam at 18 years old. That was no joke. Jones is head of the trustee board here at the Baptist Union Baptist Church in Dillon, Virginia. But 50 years ago, he was just a scared teenager, driving a tractor-trailer truck full of fuel through the mountains of Vietnam at night with only parking lights to show the way. And you had to haul at night not to get blown up. (laughs) The worst part of that, coming back down. Jones remembers this one time. He was driving down the mountain a bit too fast. The trailer starts sliding toward the left side of the tractor, and I I couldn't stop it. So he opens the door, throws his M16 out, and leaps after it. Then the trailer turned over. It didn't, the only reason it didn't blow because I was hauling diesel. If I was hauling gas for the jets and the jeeps, I, I probably wouldn't have made it. Of course, he did make it, with only a sprained ankle and a story to tell. It's one of the stories he contributed to God and Country, the Stories of Our Veterans. It's a 70-page hardcover book put out by the Baptist Union Baptist Church, comprising stories from 10 of its veterans. I'm always happy when when veterans get a voice. Janice Johnson is a member of the church and a veteran herself. I was enlisted, Private E2, uh, in in, uh, the basic medical course, and ended up uh, retiring as a bird colonel. Uh, Who would have thunk it, you know? And some of the places that I went, you know, I would just almost pinch myself. What what am I doing here? You know, from rural Virginia to Japan, Germany, Korea, um, Albania, Nigeria, you know, places that that the Army allowed me to go. Uh, It was incredible. Colonel Johnson helped recruit other veterans in her church to participate in this writing project. It's part of a program called Home and Abroad, the brainchild of a retired Longwood University English professor named Michael Lund. This is uh, very rewarding for a man who's retired. Dr. Lund started Home and Abroad as a free writing workshop for veterans, military members, and their families. He's also a veteran, and he recognizes the value of sharing these stories. One percent of the population now in our country has military experience, and 99 percent don't know much about what it's like. So in addition to helping veterans get their stories down on paper, Dr. Lund also prints them as books or booklets and provides each writer with copies to distribute for free. So there's a something you hold in your hands that you can show people. Recording these stories is growing increasingly urgent as veterans of Korea and Vietnam grow older. Church member Sam Matthews is 78 and now has a little trouble communicating since having a stroke. Then what I want to say gets tw- tw- twisted. <laughs> but the words he wrote are perfectly clear. He served in a military police battalion, one of the many units deployed to Oxford, Mississippi in 1962. The town of Oxford is an armed camp following riots that accompanied the registration of the first Negro in the university's 118-year history. The student they were there to protect was an African-American man named James Meredith, a veteran himself. But shortly after Sam Matthews' unit left for the university, all of the African-American soldiers, officers, and enlisted returned to base. An order had come down, barring them from participating, for fear that their presence would only incite more violence. Then, to add insult to injury, the entire unit was ordered not to speak of it. Sam Matthews remembers how humiliating that was. We can't even go and help defend 
this black man, and we are blacks. It makes me feel like it was done with us wrong. It's obviously a painful memory for Matthews, but he's still happy to see it in print. <laughs> it's nice. It's good. He says it validated him. And it was put down someplace where somebody else can see. Many of the stories in this God and Country book are compelling, but not all are serious. I had fun. I enjoyed myself. That's the kind of person I am. <laughs> Meet Thomas Hutcherson. He's a deacon in the church now, but he looks back fondly on his three years as an army sergeant. He says most people don't know what veterans went through. And if we knew what they knew or experienced what they experienced, we would treat veterans completely different. Welford Jones, the soldier who leapt from his fuel truck, agrees. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's very important to let them know what the veteran went through, what the veteran going through now. Uh, a lot of veterans are still catching a hard time. What would you say is the best thing that's come out of this project, this book? Probably what we're doing right now, talking about it, talking about it. For WMRA News, I'm Emily Richardson-Lorente. Well, if you've spent any time in downtown Harrisonburg recently, you've almost certainly noticed a sudden influx of black and white scooters, maybe some green ones, too, all over the sidewalks. JMU students seem to love them, but the scooter invasion is not without controversy and risk. WMRA's Christopher Clymer-Kurtz reports. It's late afternoon in front of a downtown Harrisonburg burger joint, and James Madison University student Jake Abruzzo is about to ride off on a bird scooter. Uphill they struggle sometimes, but... Most of the time they're pretty fast, yeah. (laughs) Bird Rides Incorporated is a California-based company that has placed its electric scooters on university campuses and on the streets in about 80 cities in 21 states and eight other countries, according to its website. How it works is there's an app, and you can go on the app, and it tells you where they are. You find one, you scan it, and it'll tell you what its battery percentage is at, and then you can say unlock, And then it's a dollar to rent it initially, and then I think it's like 10 or 20 cents for every minute after that. A lot of the times it's cheaper than an Uber. You just leave them when you're finished, preferably by a bike rack and not in a public pathway. There's a throttle for a go, and then a brake, and the handlebars, and a foot brake as well. Like all of the other scooter riders I see, Abruzzo is not wearing a helmet. He puts in his earbuds to listen to a Spotify playlist. And you gotta put up the kickstand. And heads south on the northbound one-way Main Street. These electric scooters from Bird or one of its competitors are not always welcome in cities. Richmond, for example, began impounding scooters, but in September the mayor submitted a permitting proposal to the city council that would allow them. In Charlottesville earlier this month, the city council approved a regulatory pilot program for them, according to the Richmond Times-Dispatch. And Harrisonburg has kept an open mind, according to Assistant City Attorney Wesley Russ. So we didn't have anything on the books to prevent them from putting the scooters out. He said the company started with putting out 75 to 100 scooters, but by the beginning of November, there were around 200 out on the streets. They sort of fit in with the city's goals. The city's done a lot to try and promote travel by means other than a single occupancy vehicle, um, with bike lanes and sidewalks everywhere, turning away a private sector group that wants to come in and drastically increase the ridership in our bike lanes virtually overnight and at no cost to us. When that was has been a long-term goal for the city, uh, it seemed like a weird uh, direction to go. 
College students seem to love riding the things. At least that's who I found out and about. So you were riding a scooter and you think you got a broken one? Emma O'Brien is a grad student. I talked to her near Klein's Dairy Bar. Oh, well, at least I think the little handle was jammed because it just like wouldn't stop going. And I had to like hop off of that one because it was just kept going. And I had to like hold it. So yeah, a little bit of scary one there. <laughs> but usually they're pretty fun. Like um, I rode one this weekend for brunch, like just down here because I live at Urban. So super handy for me downtown. They do pose a safety risk. In October, a JMU student on a scooter was seriously injured when a car struck her. Bird requires that riders are at least 18 years old, but Russ said wearing a helmet isn't required, just recommended in Harrisonburg. Riders shouldn't use earbuds, he said, and should use bike lanes when possible and follow the rules of the road. As for sidewalks? Certainly in downtown where we've prohibited bicycles on sidewalks, it should not be ridden there. We're still trying to decide what position we want to take on scooters on sidewalks, kind of in lower pedestrian traffic areas. The scooters are charged overnight by independent contractors, but not college students living on campus. JMU sent out a mass email in October noting that charging scooters for profit is prohibited in university buildings. Russ said there is potential for the city to develop more guidelines, such as about where the scooters can be placed by those contractors, or maybe even creating permitting fees for the scooter company. Having the scooters here might provide another benefit for the city, data. Bird has offered to share all of their ridership data with us in an anonymous fashion, basically start locations and locations, routes, so that we can try and piece together, you know, how are people using these? Are there areas that are high traffic that maybe we don't have a bike lane and we should? Back out on the town, I see still more students zipping along. I've only ridden it once to class, and then my friend asked if I wanted to come downtown in Bird, so that's why we're here. So you came downtown to Bird? Yes. Yeah. So it's a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> They're kind of tricky to use, you have to get used to it. You were going pretty fast down there. I know, that was fun, that was really fast. Were you worried about falling and, and hitting your head? Or... Um, I mean a little bit, I guess you just have to be aware of your surroundings, yeah. <laughs> I also see Desmond Weichel out for a walk, not a ride. Yeah, I just noticed those last couple of days. Well, have you tried them? No, no. I don't have time for that. Hell, I need to walk at my age anyway. It's a novelty, I guess, like kids with skateboards. Time will tell. For now, though, Harrisonburg has a bit of an electric scooter invasion on its hands. For WMRA News, I'm Christopher Clymer Kurtz. Yeah, another company called Lime has also flooded town with its scooters, but uh, some of those have been recalled in other places. Uh, You'll find more on that and some pictures of the scooters at WMRA.org. Let's wrap it up now with a look at the week in Virginia politics with Jeff Shapiro of the Richmond Times-Dispatch talking with Craig Carper at WCVE News in Richmond. Jeff, Tuesday came the announcement that we all knew was coming. Amazon announced that it is splitting its HQ2 headquarters between Queens, New York and Crystal City, Virginia. The 25,000 jobs it will bring to the Commonwealth is making many people happy, but there is also some trepidation about the nearly $2 billion the state paid out in incentive money to the company. And Governor Northam says that these are uh, investments that are going to be income generating for the state from the beginning. But nonetheless, this romancing of Amazon calls attention to this escalating war among the states for the biggest, best, and best known brands, certainly Amazon among them. 
The state insists that this couldn't happen without these incentives. Virginia throwing nearly $2 billion at a company that really doesn't need it. And this is triggering a debate over the appropriateness of these sweeteners. It's particularly sharp-edged debate among Democrats. There are very liberal Democrats who decry this as corporate welfare. There are more moderate Democrats, particularly from Northern Virginia, who fear that this wave of newcomers is going to make more stressful an already stressful way of life. Are there issues of transportation, mass transit, housing prices, what have you? The big talking point for the administration on this is these are inducements that are not going to be paid to the company until it achieves certain objectives, and that would include developing business that has nothing to do with the federal government. In fact, that could cost the company inducements. But that's important because if we learned anything after the last recession and that last round of across-the-board budget cuts by the federal government, that Virginia is overly dependent on federal largesse, About 30% of our economy is courtesy of Uncle Sam. This get also has a political consequence. It is certainly emblematic of the kinds of voters with whom Democrats are having the greatest success, affluent, highly educated suburbanites, many of them newcomers, and a good number of them born abroad. And the redistricting card gets wilder. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear a GOP challenge to a lower federal court's decision to scrap 11 House of Delegates districts as racially gerrymandered. Now, this speaks to one of the complications that Republicans are facing. Their base is shrinking, but these lines, these House of Delegates lines, which have been in dispute since they were drawn in 2011, maximize the voting strength of that shrinking base, which is largely white, male, rural, and certainly conservative. The law, to some degree, has been against the Republicans. Of course, a trial court throughout those boundaries back in June. And so what the Republicans are doing now is playing the process card. They're trying to extend this appeal as long as possible, largely to preserve the existing boundaries as long as possible, ideally that they might be in place in 2019 when the House Republicans will be defending their shrinking majority. So this is a twofer for the Republicans, but there is a looming concern that despite certain procedural advantages, what if the Democrats take back the House and the Senate in 2019? Of course, that sets up the Democrats to control redistricting in 2021 and perhaps perpetuate Democratic control of the legislature for at least a decade. And Ms. Spanberger goes to Washington. Abigail Spanberger, who achieved a stunning upset over entrenched Republican anti-establishment Congressman Dave Bratt, was in Washington this week for new member orientation. And having taken out Dave Bratt, the face of the anti-establishment insurgency within the GOP, she is getting an enormous amount of attention from political operatives, from political underwriters, and the national political press. And And one of the issues on which she has found herself pressed is her refusal to support Nancy Pelosi for House Speaker. 
It is Spanberger's view that the Democrats need a new face, but the political dimension of this has to do with what's going on back in the 7th District, though it is anchored by big hunks of Chesterfield and Henrico County, areas that are blue and getting bluer. Eight of the 10 counties that make up the 7th are reliably red. Trump-friendly countryside. So this is a way for Spanberger to sort of strike a balance between her core supporters and those potentially hostile to her. And the former House Majority Leader, Eric Cantor, who was vanquished by Dave Bratt four years ago, is jumping back onto the public stage, writing an op-ed for the New York Times saying that Republicans need a suburban strategy. This is nothing but cheek, I would suggest, on the part of Mr. Cantor. When he was standing for renomination in 2014, he was pretty much invisible to his constituents, a chunk of whom, of course, are in those suburbs. Mr. Cantor did not endorse Dave Bratt for re-election against Abigail Spanberger, and one would have to assume Mr. Cantor is perhaps pleased by Mr. Bratt's defeat. But writing an op-ed for the New York Times assures a measure of visibility that in Mr. Cantor's new line of work could be very lucrative. He's making a lot of money, millions of dollars, uh, we are led to believe, as an investment banker with a Los Angeles firm, and his primary job is to open up doors in Washington. Thanks, Jeff Shapiro, political columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Have a great weekend. Support for WMRA's News and Information Fund, which makes our award-winning coverage possible. This provided by Bib and Dolly Frazier, Les and Johnny Grady, Klein May Realty, Eugene Stoltzfus Architects, Joy Loving, Janet Tretner, Nancy Barber, Pam and Jim Huggins, an anonymous donor, and by a grant from a donor-advised fund of the Community Foundation of Harrisonburg and Rockingham County. You'll find all our stories archived at WMRA.org. To support local news on WMRA, go to the website, Mouseover News, then click on News and Information Fund. And be sure to subscribe to the WMRA Daily Podcast for an update on local and statewide news every weekday on your smartphone. Details at WMRA.org. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's News Director and Morning Edition host. I'll talk to you in the morning. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.